To start the conversation for a brand new training year, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research, the Miss Amala of Wells Fargo. Gents, first of all, Happy New Year, and let's get straight into it. Jim Bianco, how dependent is this market rally on rate cuts materializing sometime soon? Oh, I think it's very dependent. I think it's really dependent on yields coming down, which are a function of those rate cut rallies. If you look at 2023, you take out the AI, the seven AI Magnificent Seven stocks, the market was a slog all year until November when the bond market took off and rates came down and then you had that massive two-month rally. If we're going to have another slog in interest rates in 2024, and that's what I think might happen, I think you're going to have a slog in the bond market as well. Too. I mean, in the stock market as well, too. Well, let's go to the bond market first. The two-year yield down 41 basis points in November. In December, Samir down 43 basis points. Samir, has this market already cut rates for the Federal Reserve already? I mean, I don't see how you see it any other way, right? I mean, look, we're, we're basically forecasting between six and seven rates if you look at where market pricing is. Um, and then when you look at where kind of equities are with respect to multiples and what they're kind of embedding with respect to earnings growth, I mean, it's really the best of all worlds. And I appreciate the seasonality around year end and the start of a new year. There's a lot of hope around. Um, I guess we would fade that hope. I mean, here you've, you've probably, you know, discounted a lot of the year end gains already. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a great time to build some dry powder and get ready for the next round of volatility and you may get it on on either side stocks or bonds so you know we're not uh you know tilting one way or the other we're just going to kind of stay you know humble nimble and and ready to act you've said for a while fate that hope lighten up on tech discretionary things are too rosy i remember last time you spoke to me at least on this program back in i think late november the meaningful follow-through from here to the upside was unlikely then we had something like another four five percent submit what do you think is going on contrary to what you were expecting it's all liquidity and flows, which, I mean, look, in the short run, I mean, with January, with those 401k flows coming in, could you go on for another two, three, four, six weeks? Absolutely. Um, and that's where, again, for kind of clear-eyed, rational, reasonable investors, I think this is where fundamentals and valuations really kind of help to be a much better guide than kind of flows and technicals, which can almost always overshoot. So, you know, right now, I mean, could we keep on going? Absolutely. But I think the real way to take advantage of that is to keep kind of taking some of that, you know, those gains, take them off the the table, put them aside as dry powder. And then I think as the year goes, you know, whether it's the elections, whether it's summertime, I do think you'll get some choppiness. Jim, let's talk about the pain trade. You alluded to it. Last year, the bond market was the pain trade in both directions. We closed 2022 on a 10-year at 387.48. We closed 2023 at 387.91. Now, Jim Bianco, when you think about it, where's the pain trade going to be this year? Well, given that everybody is leaning towards the idea that there's going to be multiple rate cuts, there's going to be a soft landing, and we're going to have a, a last mile move to 2% interest rate, 2% uh, inflation, I think the pain trade in the bond market is going to be higher yields as we go through the rest of the year, that maybe we have a no landing. That's what I think we're going to wind up doing. And I think the evidence of the economy, at least through today, is suggesting that that's probably more correct than a soft landing. And so as, as yields move higher, I think that that's what's going to catch everybody by surprise, just like when yields started moving lower two months ago, caught everybody by surprise. 18% expect higher yields in 2024. That was the stat that jumped out for me in the fund manager survey, Jim, that came out from Bank of America going into the holidays. Just 18% of survey participants expect higher yields in 24. How quickly has this market become one-sided in both bonds and stocks, Jim, in just a couple of months? 
Oh, it's become very one-sided. I think because of the last two years, we've seen a 500 basis point rise in the funds rate. People are not used to it, and they're trying to understand it. And that's why you get these one-sided moves. That 18% number is the lowest number in the history of that survey, which goes back about 22 years. And you will wind up seeing it go in the other direction very quickly if rates start going up, because it did back in September and October when rates are going up. So you're going to get these violent moves in sentiment back and forth because of the uncertainty, because no one can remember seeing these types of moves in the bond market, you know, over the last couple of decades. Samantha, does that resonate with you? It absolutely does. I mean, look, as a market participant, when you see people this, you know, tilted to one side, I mean, it just becomes so clear as to what the right thing to do is. Now, again, you know, could we go further towards a sober shoot? It, you know, I wouldn't rule that out. But with cash still paying 5%, which it really is, um, with, you know, long rates having come down the way they have, you know, it's probably not a bad place to at least maybe lighten up just a touch on duration. And again, you know, take, you know, kind of profits on the equity side. And I think right now, hanging on short-term fixed income is a pretty good idea for the coming, come, you know, a couple of months. We're seeing that this morning. Yields up by eight basis points on a 10-year at the moment. That yield 395.94. Equities pulling back on the S&P by about 0.9%, more than 1% on the Nasdaq 100. This following a downgrade to Apple. Barclays downgrading shares to underweight from equal weight. The stock is negative 2.3%. Katie Greifeld has the story. Hey, Katie. Hey, Rare bear for Apple. According to Bloomberg, Apple has 34 buy ratings, 14 holds, and now five sell ratings. The latest being Tim Long from Barclays, cutting Apple to underweight on expectations of soft demand for the latest iPhone. Specifically, Long wrote that his checks remain negative when it comes to volumes and mix for the iPhone 15. Making matters worse, uh, Barclays sees no features or upgrades that are likely to make the iPhone 16 more compelling. And that is a blow, since if you think about a lot of the bull cases for Apple. The backbone of those calls is the Apple uh, iPhone upgrade cycle. Obviously, Tim Long doesn't see a lot happening there. Now, there's a high bar for Apple uh, when you think about this stock. It added a trillion dollars in market cap just last year alone, and that's even though it's posted four straight quarters of declining revenue, and it faces a lot of uncertainty when it comes to China, both from a demand standpoint and, of course, growing competition from the likes of Huawei. You add this Barclays downgrowth ground downgrade rather to all of those fears and apple shares currently lower by about 2.3 percent john Kelly, thank you let's pick up on one line that came out of barclays and samir i'd love your thoughts on this this is what tim long had to say we believe the continued period of weak results coupled with multiple expansion is not sustainable samir here's the difficulty for a lot of people that line was true for much of the last year and yet this stock kept advancing and closed last year higher by almost 50%. So, I mean, when you look at Apple, it's a little bit of an odd one that the core good, the iPhone, basically went ex-growth and the multiple on the stock kept expanding. So, I mean, what would you take away from that? That's it. That's the key is we ended 2022 with really low multiples, especially on those growth stocks, which left room for multiple expansion. And now as we end 2023, coming into 2024, the multiples have already expanded. So the real question you have to ask yourself is, one, do I expect any more multiple expansion? That's one of those, do you feel lucky punk types of questions? I would say no. Probably you don't get a lot more multiple expansion. So then two, the question is, do you get a lot of earnings growth? And we would argue you probably don't get a lot of that either. So that's the tricky part for 2024 for investors. Again, not for traders, not for people trying to play kind of momentum, but for investors, it's very difficult to see how you get the gains from either the multiple or the earnings side. Samir, what about the rest of the sector, given the dominance we've seen in tech elsewhere? Would you expect the leadership to stick there or shift elsewhere? 
I mean, probably six there, but I think honestly, tech probably loses its leadership status as the year goes, especially if you get kind of that no landing scenario. I mean, probably one of our favorite ideas right now is on the cyclical side, right? We really like industrials, we really like materials. Some of the defensives have been left behind, like healthcare, um, energy, you know, both the commodities and the, the stocks look really interesting here. So I think there's a lot of places where you can pick up really good value, and I think there's some interesting returns ahead. I just don't think it's tech right now. Hey, Jim, just final word, is that a view you share? Yeah, it is a view I share because I think if you want to get multiple expansion, you'd need lower yields, but that would come about with a weak economy, and then you'd have to question earnings. And if you had a no landing, you would get your earnings, but then you would get higher yields, and you'd have a difficult time with multiple expansion. So you're kind of caught in a bit of a catch-22, and you're hoping for the perfect scenario of just soft enough to you know, bring down inflation, but not too soft to bring down in uh, earnings. And that's a tough one because you're trying to draw an inside straight with that kind of a forecast. Jim Bianco, Samir Samana, sticking with us. We are about 20 minutes out from the open and bow. Equity futures near session lows with some movers. Let's get to Abby. John, before we take a look at the stocks that are dragging on the indexes, let's take a look at one stock that reverse is down move is now popping higher, and that is Tesla. In the pre-market, Tesla had been down more than 1%, but on a better-than-estimated fourth-quarter deliveries of greater than 484,000 vehicles delivered, the stock is now up more than half a percent. It looks like there could be some pull-through on lower 2024 federal tax credits uh, in that better deliveries number. Microsoft, the second biggest weighting to both the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 after gaining greater than 56% last year, its best year since 1999 on that risk-on rally. Well, today it's starting the year off down seven-tenths of one percent. And speaking of the biggest weighting, Apple, that you and Katie were just talking about, heading toward its worst day since late October, of course, on that downgrade to Barclays, by Barclays, to underweight warning of that cooler iPhone demand, a bearish tilt to the start of 2024. Very early days, just a little bit of a soft start. Abby, thank you. Coming up on this program, rising tensions in the Red Sea. We've got significant national security interests in the region just on our own, the United States. And we're going to put the kind of forces we need in the region to protect those interests. And we're going to act in self-defense going forward. The latest developments up next. One, just to reiterate what I said before, we're going to do what we have to do to protect shipping. Number two, we've got significant national security interests in the region just on our own, the United States. And we're going to put the kind of forces we need in the region to protect those interests. And we're going to act in self-defense going forward. Again, I'm not ruling anything in or out, uh, but we have made it clear publicly to the Houthis. We've made it clear privately to our allies and partners in the region that we take these threats seriously. Uh, and we're going to make the right decisions going forward. Middle East tensions escalating. Iran sending a warship to the Red Sea after the U.S. Navy destroyed three Houthi boats. Tehran's move complicating Washington's goal of stabilizing a vital trade channel. Houthi attacks in recent weeks diverting everything from container ships to oil tankers, shipping giant mess, suspending all Red Sea transit through today to assess security risk. Your team coverage starts right now with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie here in New York City. Julian Lee over in London. AMH, let's start with you here in New York City. How are they going to contain this risk in the Middle East? Well, we heard from Admiral Kirby and 
when he was asked about there's going to be any preemptive strikes as well on the Houthis, he says, listen, I'm not going to discuss this. We're not putting anything on or off the table. But they said they made the messages clear, both privately through allies, but as well publicly, that they will respond to what the Houthis are doing. Now, we've seen the Houthis go after some of these vessels that are potentially going to Israel or backed by Israel since November. But over the weekend, you obviously saw the risk just escalate and more volatility with the U.S., these helicopters coming from two U.S. carriers in the region following a distress call, two distress calls in under 24 hours from this Maersk vessel, and then they were able to sink three out of four of these or four of these boats. So the message is pretty clear right now to the Houthis, but this is really a huge risk to the Biden administration. They want to keep a lid on this volatility, and we saw that potentially happen over the weekend of how quickly the volatility in the region could really escalate. Is it a risk to commodity markets? Julian, let's go through the prices together. October, down almost 11% on WTI. November, down another 6.25. December, down 5.67. Julian, this is serious stuff. Things are fragile in the Middle East. But if you looked at crude, Julian, you'd have no idea what was coming on. What gives? Um, well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we've seen a, a, a rise today of somewhere between two, two and a half percent in, in crude prices. But that's coming off these big falls that you've just mentioned. And we're still seeing um, Brent below 80, WTI below 75. Uh, this is on top of uh, all of the OPEC plus cuts uh, that have been uh, agreed and extended and then deepened for several members coming into effect uh, as of yesterday. And that still hasn't pushed uh, prices uh, above 80 for Brent, uh, 75 for WTI, even with all these tensions in the Middle East. Um, and so I, I think that these tensions aren't being ruled out, but they are uh, playing out in an environment that is still pretty weak for oil, despite a, a hefty uh, Chinese import quota uh, that has just been released for the first part of the year. Julian, how much of this is just about the number 13 million? 13 million barrels a day of production in this country, in America. I think that's got a lot to do with it. I mean, uh, the U.S. surprised to the upside on production growth last year. Um, that is uh, putting a lot of oil into the market. That, that's helping uh, to keep supplies uh, ample to Europe. Um, and that is, is putting some uh, pressure on the price. The other thing, of course, with, with the Red Sea, Saudi Arabia in particular has the ability uh, to bypass the southern Red Sea for its oil exports. Uh, it ships to the U.S., such as they still are, um, either go already around the southern tip of Africa or across the Pacific to the west coast. Its shipments to Europe uh, can be loaded onto tankers sort of two-thirds of the way up the Red Sea um, and carried northwards through the, the Suez Canal, uh, thereby avoiding uh, all these areas of, of tension. It, it's really the other barrels coming out of, um, out of the Gulf, particularly uh, Iraqi barrels, uh, heading to Europe that have, to some extent, replaced the Russian crude that's not going anywhere, and it's those that are most at risk. The latest number on the Bloomberg terminal right in front of me, Amory, 13.3 million barrels a day. Is that still the quiet boom in America that this White House won't talk about? Well, the world has been more awash with U.S. production and shale oil as well, Jonathan. The issue for the Biden administration is not going to be the oil market when it comes to the Red Sea, although, of course, they're going to be concerned to make sure that oil is flowing through these tankers, but it's consumer goods that is really the concern. But it is because of that north of 13 million barrels a day of U.S. production. Sometimes the administration doesn't love to tout this. Remember, the president 
ran on being a climate president. They want to lean into electrifying the grid and all that they are doing on the climate agenda, but it is an incredibly historic number, this record production we see out of the United States. AMH, thank you. Alongside the brilliant Julian Lee, to the both of you, thank you. Brent crude right now, 78.18, WTI 72.74. Jim Bianco, Samir Samana back with us. Samir, you mentioned energy. Let's talk about it. What reasons do you have to believe that that crude price is going high sometime soon? I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, it looks like the Chinese are finally starting to get a little bit of traction on some of their stimulus. I think the OPEC supply cuts, because they were somewhat voluntary, are being underappreciated. I think the fact that the SPR at some point has to refill is kind of lingering out there, and they seem to want to do it in the low 70s. Um, and then when you think about the fact that you, it's possible that maybe there is no landing, um, all those things tell me that the one trade that has probably the most ability to catch up is probably crude oil. And then I would say energy equities probably rally alongside that. Um, the fact that it's down here in the low 70s is probably the one asset class that probably does okay in a recession just because it is so beaten down, but does really, really well if there really is a soft and or no landing. Jim, do you agree? Yeah, no, I definitely do agree. I think that um, oil is uh, really going to be more of a demand story than it is going to be a supply story in the demand. Uh, as Samir said, it's probably going to be about China. They've had a difficult reopening after zero COVID a year ago, but maybe they're starting to get some traction. And that means that they're going to have more demand. And oil is a fungible commodity. Doesn't matter where it's made, as long as it's being consumed in greater amounts. And that should help to push the price higher as we go into 2024. And if OPEC plus, that is uh, OPEC plus Russia, holds resolve to their million and a half barrels of cut a month, then we should probably see higher oil prices. Jim, let's put a bow on it. We've spent the last 20 minutes or so talking about the potential for various pain trades. When you look at the range on Wall Street at the moment, Jim, and I know you've looked at the same numbers as me, at the high end 5,200 from Oppenheimer on the S&P year end this year, at the low end 4,200 from JP Morgan, that range, Jim, is 1,000 points wide. Just how much conviction is there on Wall Street for the year ahead? Well, I, I don't know if it's so much conviction as it is about assumptions. You know, I've been arguing for a couple of years now, what did 2020 mean for the long-term outlook for the economy, that complete shutdown restart of the global economy, the reboot? Uh, if you think not much and you keep using words like rebalance and renormalization, you're probably towards the higher end of that scale, about 5,200. If you think that it has some long-lasting effects like remote work, deglobalization, maybe you know energy being more of a political weapon, you might be at the lower end of that schedule. So I don't know if it's the lack of conviction as it is. What do you think 2020 meant for the longer-term outlook for the global economy and financial markets? So your response to that, final word, please. Yeah, I mean, look, I think here it's pretty clear. I think you've got to fade risk. I think you probably fade long-term rates just because you are getting paid so much in cash. I think you try and fight those idiosyncratic opportunities like energy. But I think right now, just given what's gone on in the last few months, I think it's just a really great time to play a little bit of defense and just, you know, take a take a flyer on the fact that maybe consensus, as they were in 2023, is a little bit wrong right now. A strong start to the year, gents. Appreciate it. Good luck for 2024. We'll catch up, no doubt, in the next few weeks, the next few months. Jim Bianco, Samir Samana. Speaking of consensus, census for last year being wrong. Just remember, average forecast on the S&P 500 last year was 4,000 points. 
we finished last year almost 20% above that average forecast. Coming up on this program, the morning calls and later. If tech goes, so does the market. That's the warning from RBC Capital's Amy Wu-Silverman. She'll join us around the open and bound. That open and bound is about seven minutes away. Equity futures near session lows were down about three quarters of 1%.